Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Liam Clifford. And I'm your co-host, Gavin Telemetti. And today we're here with Lauren Stone, a PhD student in the Geology and Planetary Science Departments. Lauren, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So Lauren, do you want to open up our conversation, uh, which I believe will be quite fruitful, uh, to say the least today, um, by telling us a little bit about yourself and the research you do here at Western? Sure, yeah. So uh, I just started this year. I started my master's and just recently rolled it into a PhD. Um, And my research looks at endoliths, which are microbes that live within rocks. And specifically, I look at endoliths uh, impact craters. So microbes living within the rocks on crater floors. And often when we think of, you know, impact cratering in the context of biology, we think of, you know, all the dinosaurs dying or some other catastrophic damage to life. Um, But actually geological changes that can occur when that meteorite impacts Earth um, can increase the habitability of the impacted rock for microbes that might colonize it after impact. So, for example, Um, The high temperatures and pressures that occur during impact can increase the porosity or the empty space within um, the like the rocks at the crater floor. And so you have more surface area that microbes can move into, but you also have, you know, an increase in um, the type of the types of light that microbes can use for photosynthesis. And also these environments are really good at protecting microbes from extreme conditions like extremes of temperatures and radiation. And so the idea is that if impact shock rocks or impact craters are a good place to find life in extreme environments here on Earth, then maybe that's also the case on other planetary bodies like Mars, um, where you do have extremes of temperatures and radiation, humidity, things like that. And so, um, of course, we don't have actual samples from Martian craters, unfortunately. Uh, But the next next best thing to look at is samples from craters here on Earth that are formed in basalt, which is the primary type of rock on the Martian surface. Um, And Dr. Uh, Alexandra Pontefract at Georgetown University had collected samples from two of these basaltic craters in Brazil. And uh, the samples were taken at sort of varying distances from the centers of the craters. So they experienced different levels of shock and different, you know, different changes based like from the impact itself. Uh, So what we're doing now is trying to see if there's sort of correlation between the shock level of a given rock sample, meaning the amount it was altered by impact, and the diversity of microbes within that sample, which would suggest, of course, that impact-related changes to the rock increase its habitability. It's very interesting that this all has connections to trying to understand the origin of life. And for a geologic process that we normally, as you said, consider to be extremely destructive, could actually be very, um, I guess, life bringing in the end that it's producing these environments where microbes can thrive. And I guess I have a couple questions on that. Um, I guess the first one is, do the microbes after the, sh- the rocks have been shocked along the crater floors, do the microbes come from an environment outside and migrate into these new shocked rocks? Or do they fight or do they come from maybe deeper down that maybe the crater has um, opened up almost like a pathway for them to come close to the surface. That might be a bit of a stretch, <laughs> stretchful question. No, no, yeah, there are, there are definitely microbes very deep down. Um, but it, in either, like in either case, when you have an impact, of course, it's gonna sterilize the surface. Any microbes there can't withstand the temperatures and pressures of that impact. 
So microbes um, could come from below if they're deep under that target rock, but um, primarily we're probably looking at microbes that are moving in from the surrounding areas. Very good. Now, Lauren, I know you had said that um, one of the specific rock types you were focusing on was basalt. Now, yep. if I access my primary education and the three types of rocks, am I correct in saying that is an igneous rock? Um, yes, I'm, I, I'm not a geologist, I should specify. I'm a biologist. Gavin probably knows more about this. I can confirm that it is an igneous rock. <laughs> okay, okay. And, 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 and that's the one that is formed after lava breaches the surface and then cools, correct? Yeah, so um, the craters in Brazil that we're looking at, um, the basalt had come from, um, I believe, volcanic deposits hundreds of millions of years ago. And then um, the impact or the meteorites crashed into those rocks. And uh, what's that, and the, the craters that you mentioned that um, Dr. Alexandra Pontefract went to collect samples, how big are we talking? Are we talking about maybe couple kilometers the size of meteor crater that's in Arizona are we talking about the size of craters that wiped out the dinosaurs so we're talking sort of medium-ish size craters I believe um, one of them is around 9.5 kilometers in diameter and the other is around 12.4 so, so a decently sized uh, crater I would say yeah. enough to probably yeah. do a sub substantial amount of damage to, to the yeah. environment <laughs> for sure but maybe create a very habitable environment soon after the events all over, so. That's hopefully, hopefully that's what we're, there is evidence to suggest that um, in other craters, but uh, we wanna confirm that in basalts. And when you're searching for, cause you mentioned you were, as you were moving further out from the center of the crater, wanted mm -hmm. to see how the types of microbes maybe change or the species change and, the diver and how diverse they become. What do the shocked rocks themselves look like as they, as you move further out? Have you gotten a chance to see how they maybe change? You mentioned porosity and how much free space they have. Yeah. Do you notice that there's maybe more free space in the center of the crater and it gets less yes. further out? Yeah, so I actually haven't had a chance to look at them myself, but I've looked at or I've read uh, work done by a previous graduate student, Nicole Pazan, before me, um, who did sort of work on those rocks themselves and did uh, find increased porosity more so towards the center of the crater where you would get increased pressures and temperatures. And it's amazing how we come full circle because uh, Nicole is uh, currently a grad cast member. So shout out, Nicole. We, we hope your <laughs> research is going well. Um, <laughs> How old are these impact craters? Like, are we talking millions and millions of years ago? Yes, so both uh, around uh, 120 to 130 million years ago, um, there's been sort of, uh, people have hypothesized that potentially they formed at the same time, either from two meteorites or from one that uh, split in half, but there isn't um, any substantial evidence for that. We would need more info on um, the exact times that uh, the meteorites hit. And since they only form, and since we think about the origin of life, where it's, we hypothesize it probably happened maybe about three and a half to maybe four billion years ago, and the yep. environment on Earth then is going to probably would have been completely different, especially how it's compared to now, and it's probably still what it was like uh, over a hundred million years ago. Do you think yep. that would probably something you you've been considering when you maybe look at the microbes that probably inhabited the shocked rocks this crater if it formed? 
much later from when we had expected like microbial life to have arisen on Earth? So, I mean, it's not exactly answering your question, but right now um, an issue that we're facing is that um, these craters uh, have been sort of taken over by vegetation. And so um, a lot of the microbes that we're seeing are, you know, it's, it's dominantly affected by um, the types of vegetation. So a lot of the microbes are um, things that use plants to get nutrients. So they're plants symbionts and things like that. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, it, it depends. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I can answer that yet without results. That's fair, but it, is, it must be a bit frustrating when you see all these plants, you're thinking like, you're just ruining all of this. <laughs> or you're making it harder for me to find out which one of these microbes does not belong with any of these plants. <laughs> for sure. Um, but I mean, hopefully what we'll see is that um, the number of types of different microbes or the diversity of microbes um, correlates somewhat with the shock level. Very good. And so, you know, with all of this in mind, what what was the drive to start looking at impact cratering for life? Because so often, as, as Gavin mentioned earlier, um, we view it as inherently destructive, you know, bringing about the end of a world, so to speak, as we see in movies. Um, so what made the microbiologists and other relevant scientists look towards these things um, for signs of life? Yeah, so um, a lot of biologists and, you know, sort of um, people who look at the origins of life and early life um, actually still don't think of impact craters too much. Um, but recently there's been sort of more, more of a drive to look at them um, because, you know, we know that uh, in extreme environments like the Arctic, living within rocks uh, protects microbes from life. So, I mean, first of all, you have um, people discovering these microbes living in extreme environments. That's one big push. Um, but then also there have been, there was research done um, by Dr. Zinsky's group uh, with Dr. Pontefract uh, looking at an, an impact crater uh, in the Canadian high Arctic, hot, the hot and impact structure in uh, uh, gneisses, not basalts, and they, but they did find this relationship that we're looking for here where um, the shock level of a given rock sample, meaning the amount it was altered by impact did increase with increasing diversity of the microbes that were living within it. Yeah, yeah, because it's very interesting because uh, usually when we think about um, trying to, how life maybe have arisen, a lot of people would probably think, oh, maybe it was from something that came from the depths of the ocean, it just happened, the right chemical mm -hmm. action just happened to have occurred, but we're not entirely sure how, whether it was from maybe a volcanic eruption, a lightning strikes hitting the, yeah. the right place. <laughs> but then I think it's ever, as soon as you say meteorite cratering, impact cratering, you're like, oh no, that's too <laughs> destructive, it can't be yeah. this. And then there's the whole argument about, did maybe meteorite, meteorites were also what brought the microbes that were able to populate early Earth to Earth from space, they may have come from a different source. Yeah, so um, about something about you said earlier. Um, so a lot of people, when they're thinking about the origins of life, sort of the big theory is submarine hydrothermal vents. Um, but again, th those can be created by impact events. We can get the generation of a hydrothermal system, which is essentially just like hot water interacting with rock. 
um, we can get those at impact craters. Impact craters can generate those hydrothermal systems. Um, and you know, especially in the context of Mars, where we, uh, you know, we don't, we haven't had liquid water for a long time, or at least on the surface. It's important um, that impact craters can form um, these hydrothermal systems because we could have sort of transient liquid water from uh, an impact event that um, sort of creates this hydrothermal system and melts uh, water ice. Very good. And I, I, th I think that, you know, inevitably the conversation was going to come up with Mars again because we are trying to utilize examples here on Earth to understand more about the solar system. How mm -hmm. do you find the applicability uh, sorry, let me try that again. The applicability um, carries over to Mars. You know, is this providing, you know, sort of a good barometer or are we, are there other considerations that need to take place when making this comparison? Sure. So, um, I mean, I would say that looking at basaltic craters on Earth are probably, is our best, the best analog we can get for now. Um, and ultimately the hope is that this research will sort of help to, um, contribute to this growing body of evidence that um, impact craters are important on Mars when we're searching for life. Um, but absolutely, there are many different, uh, there are many differences between um, impact craters here on Earth versus Mars. And actually, an experiment we're planning on doing is sort of to help address that, uh, where I'm going to take samples of these rocks that I have from impact craters in Brazil and sort of incubate them under Mars-like conditions um, with the hope of looking at uh, how microbes utilize those rocks uh, under Martian conditions. Yeah, doesn't your... Under what, sorry, Gavin, I, ju I just have a follow-up question. Um, mm -hmm. Under what pretenses can we simulate Martian conditions? Like, like you know, how do we conceive of controlling and constructing an environment that simulates what Mars is actually like? What sort of specifications go into that? Yeah, so that's a tough question, especially because we don't have all of the information about what Mars really uh, was like, especially in its like early, uh, early years. Um, there's a lot of debate around that. So, I mean, really, the I, we have to sort of pick something that um, will be accepted by um, planetary scientists as a potential Mars-like condition. Um, so, in particular, uh, right now, we're looking at um, making it sort of anaerobic, meaning there's no oxygen in the atmosphere, because that's relevant to Mars, obviously, which is in itself very complicated <laughs> to construct. Um, but also figuring out um, temperatures and um, things like that. We're looking at maybe uh, sort of trying to replicate uh, a crater lake on Mars, similar to what Jezero Crater, where the Perseverance rover landed, uh, would have been. Um, so we're trying to figure out, you know, what you know, what sort of water temperature do you want to think of? What nutrients would be in there that microbes could utilize, etc. And regarding the temperature, um, I'm guessing we would expect maybe early Mars to be still cooler as compared to Earth since it is um, further away from the sun, I'm guessing. Yeah, so there's, I mean, yeah, again, there's a lot of debate about that. Um, but in the context of impact craters, um, like I was talking about earlier, they can generate these hydrothermal systems. So we can get heat from that impact. So the, the heat of the crater lake um, 
it doesn't necessarily have to correlate super strongly with the, you know, the heat of Mars itself, the temperature of Mars itself. We can get a transient um, increased temperature at that uh, hydrothermal system. Yeah, because I've seen it a lot in the planetary science community, the debate on how long will the heat of, will the residual heat from an impact crater last if yeah. it does produce a hydrothermal system? And I, I know there's the whole arguments people have like, oh, probably last maybe like a few tens, thousands of years. And others will say, no, it could last for hundreds of thousands of years. And then, yeah. and that could be the difference between something will start to grow, but will die halfway. And sure. this could create a microbial ecosystem. Sure, yeah. And I mean, if life could evolve in this sort of transient hydrothermal system, you know, we have to consider whether it could have evolved enough to survive past that, um, whether it could have evolved to survive even to today. And is there is there any discernible objective way to determine just how hot these impact craters got? You know, could we throw a ballpark estimate at it just to sort of, you know, give um, a bit of context for what we're talking about? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, again, that's not really, that's not work that I do. I'm a biologist. I don't really know much about that, but I think modeling has been done. Um, and I mean, to give a ballpark, I would say we could get up to sort of the hundreds of degrees. In terms of this experiment, I'm looking at probably more like 70 or 80. Um, but I mean, again, the temperature would decrease the, you know, as time goes on after the impact. Yeah, Liam, just to add to that, it's a question of, do we look at the temperature? Well, Lauren, I'm assuming that you'd look at the, um, the residual temperature of what happens after like a, maybe a few minutes or so, a few years after the impact events happened, everything's yeah. like really calmed yeah. down. Because yes, yeah, immediately it would be too hot um, yeah, uh, for life. There's a, lot, there's a lot of modeling that suggests <laughs> that the split seconds a meteorite uh, bombardment event happens, the temperatures can, for a split second, be above 5,000 Kelvin. And then yeah. we'll average around 2,000 degrees Celsius. So it's a, it would definitely be, <laughs> that's, errat that's vaporizing rock temperatures <laughs> right <Yeah>. there. <laughs> Certainly yeah. not uh, microbial appropriate temperatures. <laughs> Of course not. And, uh, you know, I always ask those questions knowing that um, the answer is often much more complex uh, to come up with just based on a number of factors. Yeah. Um, now, I, I do think it's important. So I always ask this question is mm -hmm. I had come up with a question that said, what spurred on this interest? Was it an interest in rocks or was it an interest in life? And you quasi answered that question, but <laughs> I will rephrase it to give you the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> so definitely the interest in life for me, I, I'm primarily a biologist, but um, I think a lot of times biologists have a tendency to ignore geology, but I don't think that we can have a conversation about the origins of life without talking about geology. You can't have an origin of life without looking at where it's getting its nutrients, um, most likely sort of from minerals surrounding it in the rock. Yeah, it, it just brings up how much um, cross collaborations really needed across the sciences to try and answer the bigger questions that one science field can't get all the Absolutely. answers Absolutely. That's why I'm, I, you know, I'm grateful, of course, for um, Western's planetary sciences program and the fact that you know the planetary sciences itself is an institute and you have all these people from different departments working together. 
yeah, it's, I mean, it just goes to show you just how uh, uh, invaluable an interdisciplinary approach is um, when addressing these, uh, you know, quite yeah. complex and multifaceted issues. So, you know, we talk about finding little microbes in rocks, but to the average person on the streets, they might not even bat an eye at this. So sure. if, if you had to speak to someone about why this was important to continue, what would you say to them? Sure. So, I mean, when we're thinking, I mean, I think a lot of people are interested in extraterrestrial life. I mean, if you just think about this, you know, this thing about this, you know, the states releasing a report on UFOs in June, whatever, there's so much interest around extraterrestrial life. Um, and most likely that life would be microbial. The vast majority of life on earth is microbial. Um, and so we do have, you know, we have all these rovers on Mars, we have all this research going on, but we can only cover so much ground um, when we're looking for microbes or signs of ancient life, like Perseverance is looking at. And so we have to think about where do we start? Where do we start looking? And, you know, the, the goal of this research is to, you know, hopefully bring more um, awareness to the fact that maybe we should be starting at impact craters like Perseverance is doing. And what you say on, on with that, do you think the way we are trying to understand the origin of life now and how impact craters form, do you think we're probably with the Perseverance rover on Mars getting one step closer to maybe figuring out if life ever did exist on Mars in the, in the past? Yeah, hopefully. Um, I mean, who knows what's going to come out of it, but I hopefully. Um, I think most importantly, we're looking at sort of the mineralogy of the area, we're looking at the clays, um, because again, you can't you can't have any conversation about life without determining what it's using as its habitat, as its energy source. And so hopefully, regardless of whether we find any like diagnostic features of, you know, we, there's there was life here, we can figure out, could there be life here? And is that, so I know we spoke about basalt earlier, you know, forming mm -hmm. the crux of their, their um, you know, advantageous habitation, but are there any other rocks that would be prime candidates for such? Yeah, so actually, um, this this was proven first, this, this sort of um, correlation between shock level and uh, microbial diversity, which suggests, um, you know, uh, that uh, impact shocked rocks are a good place for life. This was proven first in Nices. Um, and actually it hasn't been proven in basalts. That's the goal here is to figure out, is that also the case in basalts? Is that something that we would consider the case maybe on Mars? And I'm guessing would you say if we were one day when we can actually get, finally get Martian samples, would you be mm -hmm. one of the first to try and grab a heavily shocked or any shocked rock and say like, pass me that, I need to know what's potentially yes. lived inside <laughs> those little pores. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. So going back to, on a big circle, because it was something we didn't get to um, talk about so much. Like we've been talking about a lot about microbes, that the, mm -hmm. being, being able to survive in these shocked rocks after a meteor impact occurs. But how would you know and identify the species and even tell if there were any species in there? Like what type of techniques would you use? I guess this is, this is when your biology background would really start to come in. Yeah, so... Um essentially what happens is, in the case of these rocks at least, um, they were subjected to something called next generation sequencing, or it's that we're working on that now, 
where you look at a specific DNA sequence in um, the genome of all of the microbes in the rock, and you compare it to a database of you know, all known microbes. So you get this you know, giant amount of um, sort of it's this, this data, it basically just looks like a file with a bunch of letters in it. And try to compare those gene sequences to um, microbes that we know exist and say, does it match up? Is it this microbe or not? Or is it this microbe? Um, essentially, that's what we call bioinformatics, where we, um, we get the data in lab, of course, but then we have to figure it all out on the computer. Of course, and and you know, just for my own curiosity, how many mm -hmm. documented microbes are there on Earth? Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> like, are we talking in the millions? Oh, for sure. Yeah, billions. Yeah. Wow. Wow. This <laughs> I don't is, have an this exact is, answer for you. <laughs> yeah. No. No. And and again, right? I wasn't expecting you to be right on the ball with it. It's uh, <laughs> it, it just it really contextualizes just how um versatile life can be whether it's on yeah. earth or whether it's potentially somewhere else in our universe yeah i think, I think liam really we... just wanted to know how many microbes are living on him right now yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah no exactly a lot. <laughs> <laughs> a lot that's so funny well i i do i i hope most of them are are harmless if they are living on in fact on me <laughs> i imagine pretty much look i imagine Lauren, that most microbes or almost all of them must be like harmless or else We'd be yeah. in a lot more trouble. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of them are beneficial for us. That's why we eat yogurt. And then we will we will keep to our activia then. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Lauren, we are um, coming towards the end of our interview. Um, we always like asking about how COVID has impacted um, <laughs> research, and um, everyone's answer is yes, it has. You know, because of reasons oh. X, Y, and Z. What are yours? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I Thankfully, I knew a lot of the techniques that I was going to be using coming in. Um, and so I was able to sort of sort that out in lab by myself. Um, but it's it's been difficult. Uh, and a lot of times I've had to troubleshoot by myself. I have sort of a mini at-home lab going because I am having trouble figuring out lab space that doesn't overlap too much with other people. Um, but we make it work. Of course, of course, the resilience of life, you know, really does manifest <laughs> itself um, in the resilience to secure a lab time. So we, uh, we, we are with you on that one. Um, I always like leaving off the interviews um, with one thing you want to leave the audience with today. I would, oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say the big thing that I push for is, you know, don't be scared of science and don't be scared of things you don't know. I am doing a PhD in geology and planetary sciences and I came in not having any background in either. Um, but especially in the context of astrobiology, but I mean, in science in general, we need people with different ideas than the norm, than what you're taught. And so everybody has something to offer. You don't have to know everything about everything. Um, as long as you're willing to learn, you got this. And I think that is an absolutely wonderful note to end off on. We, Lauren, we want to thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. And we hope you had some fun as well. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Not a problem.
This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Liam Clifford, and my co-host and producer for today was Gavin Tolometti. We've been speaking with Lauren Stone, a PhD student in geology and planetary science. If you would like to be involved with our show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.